Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Hello and welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to be sharing with you a sermon from the archive that Nigel Lee gave on 1 Kings 19. This is Elijah's encounter with an angel and with God in the wilderness and on the mountain. During the course of this sermon, Nigel will talk a bit about depression. This is not specifically about clinical depression, rather the emotions and experiences that Elijah is going through in the passage. However, we know that depression is a hard topic for many people, so we wanted to give you the opportunity to opt out if that's best for you this week. Also, if you resonate with the emotions that Elijah is feeling in this passage, or are struck by any of the themes that Nigel unpacks in this passage, please consider reaching out to a friend or a member of your church's pastoral team to discuss this further. Also, if you're concerned that you might be exhibiting symptoms of clinical depression, consider reaching out to your GP to discuss this further. Now we're thinking about the prophet Elijah and have been for the last uh, few weeks. Do you know that the prophet Elijah is mentioned in the New Testament more than any other prophet? 27 times Elijah is uh, mentioned in the New Testament. It is almost as if the New Testament is in awe of this uh, Great Old Testament figure, really. He was uh, one of the greatest in all of Israel's history in terms of courage and his input and the relevance constantly in Israel's changing and fluctuating situations, the relevance of his central prophetic message. But towards the end of the New Testament, in the book of James, you get a very important little comment about him. He was a man made of no more than the same stuff as the rest of us. He was just like us. It's it's possible sometimes to look at some of these towering biblical figures and uh, to think that they're just out of our league. I mean, their experiences are so awesome. They're they're such... um, We lose interest in them because we feel intimidated. But we are reminded that Elijah was certainly one of the greatest men of faith in the Bible. And yet he was only human, and we must never forget that. And in the chapter that we're going to read in a moment, we watch Elijah going a long journey into depression. See it as the the story of two mountains. The last chapter that we are reading, chapter 18, was on Mount Carmel. This next chapter, he will reach Mount Horeb. And what we're looking at is the journey between these two. On Mount Carmel, he had won a stunning victory against idolatry, against child sacrifice, against uh, the misplaced worship of sex, against the corruptions that were spreading like a stain through the nation from the royal family. Absolutely stunning occasion in the whole of the Old Testament, 1 Kings 18. But then in chapter 19, he goes to Mount Horeb, which is right at the other end of the country and beyond. It's it's out beyond the borders, going south into the wilderness, the borders of Israel. And now we see 
Elijah weak and self-pitying and just run out of gas. He says, I can't go on. I've had enough. I just want to die. The great high is followed by the great low. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 19. If you want a church Bible, um, there are some hidden behind the curtains. Matthew will get some. Graham's giving out some. All you do is put up a hand if you'd like one. It's on page 361 in the church Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 19. I think we probably have enough. That's quite a forest of hands. If not, share. There's another one needed there. Sarah, you like sharing, do you? She doesn't like to poor old Matt. Right, 1 Kings 19, page 361. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep, maybe hoping he wouldn't even wake up. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, 
king over Israel, and anoint Elisha's, Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all those whose mouths have not kissed him. Depression uh, is a condition with a great variety of causes, many of them overlapping one with another. The cause could be mainly physical. Vitamin deficiency, lack of sodium in your bodily makeup, see the doctor and they can, they can deal with that. Could be emotional, suppressed anger and resentment and hurt. Stuff that gets in there, it gets into all of us, but it's not been cleaned out properly and dealt with in a biblical way and it can lead to those blacknesses of mood and loss of energy. You don't want to get up. Could be spiritual. Guilt is a very frequent cause of depression. And some of the Psalms talk about the feeling of wasting away because of sin, not dealt with properly. There are people who suffer from what's called sad. Seasonally affected disorder, you know, lack of lack of sunlight. Uh, maybe it's more of a wintertime uh, condition, and a kind of mild depression uh, settles on you, um, especially during certain times of of the year. And you feel like, you know, as a kid, there was a little blanket all over, and you you couldn't sort of get it off. Some people seem to get it every Monday morning during summertime as well. It, it just, you know, it's one of those things that come over you. When I was um, responsible for about 60 staff in UCCF, February was the month. We always used to expect people who would start to show some of the symptoms of, of, sort of Eli, I've had it. I don't want to go on anymore. And February was always the time. Elijah certainly wasn't suffering from, from sad sunstroke, more likely. He was an open-air prophet in, in a very hot place. He's suffering, though, from something far more serious. It's too simplistic, I think, to say that Elijah had depression. Therefore, if the doctor says that's what I've got, all my problems and symptoms must be the same. But I think there are, here in this story, particular causes and symptoms, in his case, which have vital things to teach all of us, all of us. Even those of us that, you know, might, you might think, you know, I'm the most stable person around. Uh, this stuff is in the Bible for our learning. The stages of his journey all the way to that cave on Mount Horeb uh, in the chapter that we've read are very clear. He received a death threat from the highest authority in the land, that Queen Jezebel. In the previous verse, the previous verse of the last chapter, that he had run 20 or 30 miles. I mean, the commentators vary a little bit what the distance is, but at least a marathon from Mount Carmel, Carmel to Jezreel. And now, exhausted and in fear of his life, because of this threat, he runs across, heading south, runs across the border between Israel and Judah. He then runs all the way down through Judah until he the most southerly town in Judah, Beersheba. That's about 100 miles he's done so far, fleeing for his life. 
in Beersheba, he leaves behind his servant, his um, companion, the person that tended to him, that had presumably run with him, but someone, another human person, someone to talk to and so on. And he treks on out about another 20 miles into the desert, and he finishes up way out in the wilderness uh, with no, no, nothing really to sustain life there. And there he just gives up. He's about 150 miles from that great victory in the previous chapter. And now he just collapses, overwhelmed with despair. And he says, I'm finished. I want to die. Take away my life. What are the causes in the chapter of this state that he gets into? I think they're physical and emotional and spiritual. And we can see all three wrapped up together. Physically, he's just exhausted. He's drained and tired and vulnerable. There had been a massive investment in prayer before that, uh, before standing alone on Mount Carmel, faced with, there he was, absolutely alone as a prophet and servant of God, and arrayed against him were 850 false prophets. I can remember some years ago in a university evangelistic mission in Lancaster, and the Christian Union, in their wisdom, had arranged, I mean, Lancaster then, I don't know whether it's true now, it was the university that had the, the greatest occult, uh, the strongest occult society, and the greatest amount of occult influence. I could tell you all kinds of stuff. The university is built up near that hill Pendle, where the witches used to gather up to the 17th century and so on. And they'd arranged a meeting, and I think the title was something like, What's Wrong with the Occult or something. Crazy. I, I, I found myself standing in a, a lecture theater, absolutely full of members of the occult society trying to talk to them about Jesus. They weren't very interested. There were all kinds of spooks. I felt I had to go and lie down after I was totally exhausted. He had been in that kind of a, a confrontation. I think the whole episode, probably on Mount Carmel, would have been deeply draining. I come back, I have come back after these missions, you know, and I sit, I stand there, and then somebody will say something, or there'll be a line of a song. I've, some, some of you I've seen, and you suddenly crack up. Uh, you come back in a state. If Rodney was reading out the church accounts, I'd probably burst into tears. Well, we might anyway this afternoon. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That a little, many of you know this. A little something. When you, you've been under the cosh and you're tired, a little something can tip you over. And you run all those miles. I'm agog at this Ranulph Fiennes and Dr. Michael Stroud who've just done seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. I couldn't even, you know, walk that far. And by the time they'd finished, it, it was true that they weren't quite thinking straight and they weren't agreeing with each other. And some of their comments after they'd done that last one in America were pretty bizarre. But you've seen the signs on the motorway, haven't you? Tiredness kills. Take a break. It's usually just a mile or two before a service station. You know, it's a sponsored sign, I guess. But it's actually true. Physically, he was only human, and his finite resources were gone. Secondly, emotionally, it's clear that he had started to develop a skewed perspective on who he was and what he was doing. Listen to him. I'm a complete failure. My life is useless. 
Nothing is being accomplished here anymore. I haven't been able to turn anything around in this nation. I'm no better than those that have lived before me, who've got us into this mess. Everything I touch just goes to pot. I just want to die. Well, he's wrong. It wasn't true. He felt that way, but he had already accomplished an enormous amount, and he had much more to give. But he also had a tendency, we can see, to be a little bit dismissive of others, the contribution of others. They're all useless. I'm the only one left. He'd forgotten, for instance, had he? The very faithful work that was being done by Obadiah in the previous chapter, whom he had been talking to. I mean, if you glance back at um, chapter 18, uh, the end of verse 3, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. He also had a very senior position in Ahab's court. And while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifteen each, and supplied them with food and water, presumably from King Ahab's table. <laughs> He'd forgotten him. And now, instead of perhaps being comforted and encouraged by the support of other believers, he could have sought out Obadiah, he could have been taken to one of those caves, he would have had 50 people immediately who would have prayed for him, who would have prayed with him. Instead, he goes off like a wounded animal to lick his own wounds, abandoning his servant so that he can be completely alone. And we do this, don't we? Sometimes when we've been hurt or when we've had too much pressure for too long, our tendency left over from our old sinful nature, sin always divides, Satan always tries to cut out the weakest of the flock, divide you, get you to be on your own. Uh, he ran to be on his own. And I just want to say that withdrawal is rarely a wise thing to do. If he'd sought these guys out, there would have been a context of prayer and fellowship and help. I know it's humbling, but sometimes we just need to acknowledge that we need other people. And it's often pride and a little bit of foolishness that uh, makes us go sort of hold up somewhere in self-pity. You see, at the beginning of chapter 17, the Lord had said, verse 3, Go and hide yourself, Elijah. And he'd gone away to Zarephath and, and the brook Cherith and so on. He hid himself. At the first verse of chapter 18, the Lord had said, Now, Elijah, go and show yourself. And at every stage so far, he has been doing what the Lord told him. Now he's gone and hidden himself again. But the Lord hasn't told him to do that. He's acting out of his own fear and uh, overwrought state. And he's completely completely twisted now in what he thinks about himself and his own role and, and, and what's happening and so on, when he needed actually others to, to bring balance. And then spiritually, we can see another of these causes. He began to lose sight of the, the greatness and the power of God. We can often think that somehow God has changed or God doesn't care or God isn't answering our prayers or isn't interested or he's grown feeble or something, when actually we're looking in the wrong direction. And we're forgetting how unchangeably great and capable God is. Now, it's true that Queen Jezebel had said, Hey, by tomorrow, Elijah, you're dead meat. 
She was a snake. Every time Jezebel opens her mouth, she, she just spits poison. She was a vicious and vengeful person, a very nasty piece of work indeed. And sometimes, let's face it, dealing with a difficult person, perhaps we report to them at work or, or we're thrown closely with them or they're in the family, it can cause immense depression. Now, it's true that she'd been talking in this way, but excuse me, was God frightened of her, this woman? She's got her end coming in a few chapters, you know. Absolutely not. God was not frightened. Had God's plans all been torn up because this pagan queen, in the name and the authority of a few wooden idols, had threatened to do something nasty? No way. But Elijah was forgetting. You know, we start to lose the plot when we stop remembering the constant goodness and love and power and grace and majesty of God, and that people are sinners and rarely act just as we would like them to. We need to have both eyes open. You know, if you shut one of your eyes, both on the greatness and the power and the love and the constancy of God, and on the reality of people, if you shut one of your eyes, whichever, depression is liable to creep up on you on the blind side. Elijah had been such a man of prayer when confronting those male false prophets. He completely forgot to pray when confronting that single poisonous woman. And so, because of physical needs and emotional and spiritual, all combining, he just hit, hit rock bottom. How then does God, who is constant, as we've said, and kind and loving and powerful, how does he set about restoring his servant who's got himself into this, uh, into this state? Four steps. The first, Elijah simply goes to sleep, probably initially out of utter exhaustion and misery, but, but God allows him just to sleep. Sleep, 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 sleep. Good long sleep. And then after he's had a good rest, an angel touches him. How do you imagine that? Is that a sort of a poke with the rod of discipline? Oi, you, what are you doing here? Wake up. You know, the best angels are always cockneys. Or is it a sort of a, a more loving kind of gentle, you're ready, wake up now. And then the angel said, I'm so glad you're here. You know, you just happen to have stopped in one of the best bed and breakfasts that heaven has, has, has got. You know, this is seven star. This is this is better than you find in any of the guidebooks. Would you care to have some breakfast? And he gets up and he has a fantastic breakfast. So it feeds him, and, hmm, feeling better already, but a little more sleepy. Goes back to sleep again, and he's allowed another one. And then he gets up and but it's time for lunch, or it's next day, or two days, whatever long he sleeps. Food and rest. Oh, the tenderness. An understanding of God. Can you imagine? Can you get your head around this? This is wonderful. You're away on holiday. You're coming to the end of your two weeks. You've got to go back to work. Monday, and the company ring up and say, would you please care to take another two weeks at the company's expense? Because we think you're worth it. Way! Dream on, he says, yeah. But God is dealing with the physical first. He's kind. 
he's understanding, he's tender. There are things that he's going to talk to Elijah about, but not yet. But then secondly, he does begin to talk after Elijah is rested. And what starts to emerge now was how unhealthy his focus had become. In verse 10, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, etc., etc. When you get to verse 14, he says exactly the same thing again. Word for word. I've talked over the course of my life with various folks who are struggling with things in this area. And isn't it interesting how often they repeat themselves? Sometimes word for word. And you see them the next time, and they go over the same stuff again. And it's as if there's a kind of a loop that they go around in their head. I suspect some of us do that quite a lot. At night, during the day, driving, we just repeat the same words about our enemies or our problems or it's only this person or that. And it's a sign of slight depression, I suppose. But how self-orientated he has begun to sound. I've been serving you well. But I, it's only me. Israel is hopeless. I feel totally let down by them, oh God. They're in complete rebellion. They've started to kill your servants. They've rejected your covenant. I'm the only one left. There's no point in carrying on. And then all the same stuff again. So what does God do? He lifts Elijah's focus away from himself and from his work and all his difficulties, and away from his judgments of other people, back onto God himself, because there was something very important about God that Elijah had started to forget. First there came that wind, an astonishing wind, tearing mountains apart, ripping whole hillsides off the side of mountains and scattering them. What a wind. And then an earthquake rearranging the landscape. And then that, that fire, that, that firestorm that, that seared up the valley and, and destroyed everything combustible in its way. But God had chosen not to be present in any of those that day. He knows how to be present in those things. But that day, he wasn't in them. He organizes them. He's God. Then came a whisper. Hardly audible. It's so quiet. That the Hebrew, um, I understand, conveys the idea of almost the pregnant sound of silence. God speaking so quietly, and there, quietly, invisibly, not in the dramatic and the noisy, but, but there God was at work speaking. He still can speak that way. To you, to me, to the people you've been praying for. Some of you may have been praying for family members, children, parents, relatives, colleagues, and you just feel as if you're getting nowhere. God works very quietly through the reading of Scripture. Or that summoning of your spirit in the deep places of your own soul, that call to be listening again and obedient. And the people sitting around you and beside you are totally unaware that God is speaking quietly. Is there someone you've been praying for? And you've been getting discouraged? And is this a word for you? Is there a situation that you're concerned about? Work or home, wherever it may be. 
Maybe some here have never really in their lives stopped to listen to the God who speaks so quietly sometimes. You see, he's the God who answers prayer. And he's the God who speaks quietly. Both of those things are true. Thirdly, I can also detect in this chapter the beginning, just the beginnings of a new spirit of obedience in Elijah. In verse 11, God had said, Elijah, now go and stand in the presence of the Lord. Stand on that mountain in the presence of the Lord because he's going to pass by. But there's no evidence that Elijah did. He preferred to stay deep in his cave. And the wind and the earthquake and the fire went by. But then in verse 13, when God speaks to him again, saying, now come on, Elijah, stand out in the presence of the Lord. He came out to the mouth of his cave then and stood. And it's the quiet, living voice of God that gets all of us, actually, creeping back to the kind of humble walk with God and obedience and usefulness that we're created and called for. And then finally, in verses 15 to 17, God gives him some practical service tasks to complete. A couple of kings and a prophet to commission. A job that only he could do. But an indication that uh, the work of the Lord is being carried on. It's all in hand. It hasn't ground to a halt, Elijah, as you thought. I know what's happening here and there, and I have people moving into place. Oh, and by the way, Elijah, I still have 7,000 who are serving me faithfully. They haven't bowed a knee yet to Baal, you know. They're still loyal. They're listening. It's not just you. You don't know who they are, but then it's not really your business to know. So don't worry about it. I want you to serve me and leave to me the questions that are properly my business and not yours. So, Elijah, on you go. Rested, fed, recommissioned, on he went. That's what he needed. Let's list it. He needed rest. He needed food. He needed a break. Secondly, he needed a bit more humility, which came through uh, God's gentle rebuke. As he listened, and he understood, and he saw himself in perspective again. He needed to begin to practice that new listening to the quiet word of a great God. He didn't need withdrawal. He didn't need to let all kinds of criticism of other people flood his soul. He didn't need this sort of indispensability thing. He just needed proper life balance, humility, listening to the word of God, and then back to the practical acts of obedience and service, relating to other people, encouraging them, pointing the way forward, doing what he could do. One last comment as we finish. You've probably been noticing, seven, chapter 17, 18, 19, as we go through this Elijah story, that so far it has all been revolving around issues of food and drink. Because of Israel's rebellion against God, there comes drought and famine, chapter 17. And Elijah, in that context, has to learn to trust God for his own provision of food and then that with which he can feed others around him in those famine conditions. 
And then when the prophets of Baal have been blown away in, in chapter 18, and God is revealed as the true God, Elijah says to Ahab, you may go and eat now. The rain is coming. God is sovereign. The victory is reestablished. Now you are in a position to be able to eat freely. But then here in chapter 19, it's Elijah himself who is not only physically exhausted and needing proper food and drink, but he's become starved spiritually too and needs proper corrective food for his own soul. And the Lord provides it. Both the causes and the cure of spiritual depression are often to do with our food supply. And we can accomplish so much more than we think and not give up when we're feeding right. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for your word. In a few moments now, would you lay on our hearts those simple applications to us individually that we might be not just hearers but doers of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.